This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Hill and Katie Bulls. So today is the closing of the nominations to become the next SNP leader and a new poll is out showing where each of the candidates are with SNP voters. Katie, tell us about this poll. So what's striking about this poll is we've had a week in which I think many have said Kate Forbes has ultimately imploded in terms of her campaign, as we've documented on this podcast, on Coffee House, in the magazine. Her comments about her faith, um, the fact that she said she would not vote for gay marriage had she been uh, you know, in Parliament at that time, even though she did clarify in that same interview that she would still push through the legislation if the majority voted for it, along with comments about... Um, the fact that she didn't believe in sex before marriage, again, saying others could do what they wanted. But the way this has all come out has led to, I think, a consensus that Kate Forbes is now out of the race and has blown her chances. Now, it's definitely the case that it's led to a backlash within the party. We've seen some of her, uh, you know, parliamentary, her MSP backers say that they're no longer supporting her. But this poll of SNP supporters finds the contest is wide open. Um, the polling's by opinion matters. So it was done between Monday and Wednesday, which means you're still in the case where things could have moved on a bit since then. But that would that would capture the main thrust, I think, of, of her comments uh, because it was the start of the week when, when they're really on Monday onwards. And actually, it is still the case that Kate Forbes is ahead. She enjoys backing of 28%, and this is SNP voters, compared to 20% for her main rival, Hamza Youssef. And then Ash Reagan uh, is on 7%, and that's the other candidate in the race. And today, uh, you have the deadline for any candidate to put their names forward. So we're in a situation where I think the consensus, both amongst uh, SNP politicians who are based in the Scottish Parliament, and those in Westminster is now Hamza Youssef, who is almost in a one-horse race, because I don't think Ash Reagan, who's had a launch today, has enough profile, even enough to say. Um, she's really focused on independence and the gender recognition bill. is not going to threaten her, and they think is not going to threaten him. And then Kate Forbes has put herself out of the race. Now, this poll suggests that, actually, um, there's still quite a bit to play for, and perhaps this is why Kate Forbes is yet to bow out, even though she has apologised for any hurt from her comments and said that she that she felt very bad over it. Um, so there is some way to go. <laughs> James, what does this tell us about SNP voters? And um, also maybe the, uh, whether or not commenters whether or not commentators and certain SNP uh, politicians are maybe out of touch? Well, I think it tells us that independence is existential to the SNP and the SNP members want the person who's most likely to deliver independence. That is clearly Kate Forbes, the most effective minister, the most effective of these three candidates in the race. Leave aside her views on social issues. I think, you know, she's only 32. She's been impressive since she's taken over the job. You know, Scottish Tories have been telling me and others, you know, she's the one we most fear. And they have been watching this with glee this week, the way in which the party, she's had multiple, the SNP's turned on itself. You know, for years, the SNP was admired for their iron discipline. Um, and now, actually, they've become just like another normal party this week. I think it's a really interesting moment as well, because 
the SNP doesn't really have a history of contested elections. I think every single time they've had one uh, since the 1940s, the winning candidates have won with more than two-thirds of the vote. Basically, they don't have... It's often there's the stitch-ups, there's often the party machine gets involved. And the last time there was a contested election was 2004. And that was for Alex Salmond. And, of course, then when he was replaced by uh, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, that was, there wasn't a ballot in that case. So, and the, this is a really interesting chance to take stock of where the independence movement is. 20 years ago, the SNP was, you know, second, third party in politics. And now they're the hegemonic power. And in that time, they first of all went from being the kind of tartan Tories, more sort of socially conservative areas of Scotland, to instead taking over those Labour areas as well in the central belt, Edinburgh and Glasgow. And so this is a moment where we see, you know, is the race going to be decided by those kind of more liberal voters that they've attracted over the last 10 years or so? Or will it be those kind of more long recent members? And I think that while we can't see yet whether the, her views on social issues have, you know, seep through, as Katie says, this polling was done a few days ago, and I think these things take time to see them with voters, I think it's a reminder that the SNP are a ruthless electoral winning machine. And the reason why that is is because they have had a focus on independence. And that's why I think the independent strategy, the constitutional questions kind of dominate in the next coming weeks rather than these questions about social issues. And, I, and just on what will the membership decide? Because one of the striking things about this contest is the fact that normally when we're talking about a Labour leadership contest or a Tory leadership contest, we talk about the campaigns to stop various people. So we've been talking this week about a stop cake campaign. Mm. But other parties would give those who want to stop a person more more ways to do that, more uh, levers they can pull. Whereas in this contest, an MSP or an SNP MP has no more power than a member. So if you think about what would have happened in, uh, you know, the Labour leadership contest. Well, Jeremy Corbyn won in the end. But as a result of Jeremy Corbyn winning that Labour leadership contest um, after the election loss in 2015, you had a situation whereby they then raised the threshold so they would never have a repeat of the Jeremy Corbyn situation to make it harder so MPs had more power. If you think about the Tory leadership contest, the fact that you have to have a a certain number of MPs back and they increased that um, to make it harder for these candidates on the side to, to get out. And it means we are in quite an unpredictable sense and lots of long-standing SNP politicians will say to you our membership is very progressive they are not going to get behind Kate Forbes it's just not going to happen but it's just interesting I think with that poll which is it's always really hard to poll a membership and therefore we don't know exactly and I wouldn't want to bet everything on that being the case right now. I think it's worth also pointing out that all three candidates have not enjoyed particularly successful weeks. Humza Yusuf has been facing questions about why did he miss the final vote on gay marriage and he hasn't been able to shut that down. Uh, he's also got a pretty unimpressive track record in office. Ash Reagan's campaign launched today. She was asked questions about NDAs she signed and refused to answer whether she was a bully or not. Mm-hmm. And then obviously Kate Forbes has had not been able to put these issues to bed. So I would say that comparing that to Nicola Sturgeon, who was you know the dominant figure of her age, there's a lack of kind of enthusiasm for the kind of three contenders to replace her. And none of them seem to be shaping up to what Nicola Sturgeon has done for the SNP. Big shoes to fill. Um, and Katie, moving on to another part of the UK, how is the Northern Ireland Protocol going? Because we did have, we had been hoping <laughs> for a deal this week, um, but clearly that's not happening anymore. Well, not everyone hoping, Cindy. No, I think true. members <laughs> of the European Research Group thinking a deal this week would be bad news. So this is one of those ones where it's slightly back for those who've been listening to this podcast for several years, to, to the days where it'd be like, oh, there's about to be a Brexit deal. Oh, the right of the party don't like it. Oh, the DUP aren't ha- happy. Oh, there's a pause. Um, I still think, and I think ending this week, there's a little bit of a consensus growing, which is that Rishi Sunak's back down. Um, you know, he, he ultimately has 
seen that, that there's opposition there's lots of criticism that he his uh, team did not keep the DEP in the loop enough and they've been doing these negotiations and now is in a position where it'd be very hard to sell his deal and if to have a success on the Northern Ireland Protocol you can judge it by different things but I think lots of MPs at least view a success as uh, restoring power sharing at Stormont and how do you do that if the DEP say no? Now, I do think in terms of choreography on this, the DEP, I, I don't think you're ever going to have a situation where overnight the DEP see a deal and say, this is fantastic, we are now going back in and, and it works out seamlessly. You could have a situation when they go back in on, on a different issue after the protocol comes into place. Um, but the DEP backing is viewed as a task by the right of the party. And at the moment, that looks hard for Rishi Sunak to, to achieve. I think that there is some in the party and some in government who think that even if it takes you on the path to power sharing, what is important is the protocol has to be fixed in some way because it is uh, the beginning of then having a better relationship with the EU, which can then be used on things like security and small boats and cooperation on lots of different areas. So those are the different dynamics around this. I think Rishi Sunak could still press ahead and unveil a deal sooner rather than later. And at that point, we'll just have to see how people beyond it go. But not to give you an exact answer, but all I would say is, I think we're in a situation where it is by no means off the table. We get some movement in the coming days. And of course, today they had always set aside because it is, of course, the year's anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. At 11am, the Prime Minister held a national moment of silence. Um, James, he's got a call with G7 leaders later this afternoon. What, What can we expect him to be saying on that call? It'll be about military equipment, uh, what more can be done to keep up the pressure on Russia. A year on, uh, public support in the UK is is holding up, it's still strong, there's been some research by, I've seen um, Gabriel Millard's done some focus groups and, and, and in which it shows that there's a bit of frame but it still holds up in the UK. So I think the important thing is to kind of keep the pressure on Russia ahead of any kind of spring offensive really and that's the kind of thing that's been shaping everyone's minds about all these new uh, conscripts going in and how that's going to change the dynamics. So really more of the same and then talk about timelines and about how we can accelerate international aid around the world to help Ukraine in their struggle. James and Katie, thanks very much. And for our Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots this week, we will be taking a look at the Homes for Ukraine scheme um, and where that is at the moment. Thanks for listening.